from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Rob Koshoni on October 19, 2015. Rob ascribes himself as a closet philosopher and a student of comparative religions. Before becoming a Baha'i, he had already noticed the basic oneness of all the religions. He shares an interesting story on how his awareness led him to the Baha'is. In the interview, Rob shares his understanding of the Baha'i teaching of the oneness of religion. I started the interview by asking Rob where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I actually grew up in the interior of British Columbia in a small town, um, about 7,000 people at the time. It was very industrial, actually quite an aggressive city. It's known in the surrounding area for being not very friendly to outsiders, (laughs) oddly. Very, very Italian in nature. Actually, it was very, very Italian when I was young. So a lot of the cultural influences in the city are that way. I actually found, personally, the, the area challenging because a lot of the sort of industrial and sort of the aggressive culture around it to be extremely stifling. And in addition, just oftentimes in places like that, it's difficult to express or find venues to express and discuss, if you will, higher ideas, deeper topics. So I actually left because I found it very challenging to be there. What was religious life like growing up? I was actually originally raised Catholic. I actually went to a Catholic private school uh, until grade 7. I served as an altar boy to the point where I could recite the Mass because I would both serve regular Mass and then work as an altar boy, you know, at funerals and weddings, etc. Both my parents adhered to the Catholic faith, and I was baptized Catholic. I went through confirmation, another, uh, if you will, educational rite of passage in the Catholic Church. So yeah, it's actually up until for most of my life, yeah. I was raised Catholic. I did not remain Catholic myself, but that is my religious influence. Right. It's a very Christian city, uh, there's probably 14 churches in my small town. What were your interests growing up? My interests growing up were actually kind of parsed into two diametrically opposed phases of my life. When I was much younger, I rode horses competitively. I competed in archery. I was very much into the arts, the visual arts. I did a lot of painting and drawing. I very much loved it. Singing was another. And then, um, as is so sadly so often the case, uh, when I went into high school, I basically dropped everything but the visual arts and art class. And sad to say, my interest turned mainly to girls and substances. And most of those former, uh, what I would call, you know, noble expressions of the human spirit kind of fell away for a time. 
until late in my high school years when I really began trying to study philosophy. After graduating from high school, what did you pursue after that? What I pursued after that, actually for a time I, I merely worked in just a normal life ways. Conceptually, I actually became what I still call a closet philosopher. So my actual pursuits, the things I was passionate about, I began studying uh, philosophy and then started actually moving into investigations of comparative religion. Uh, the reason I say a closet philosopher, it's an, again an unfortunate nature of society a lot of the time that we don't have this openness to discuss deep and meaningful and challenging things. So I oftentimes when I would try to speak out about what I was looking at or investigating, people would get uncomfortable or wouldn't want to talk. So I kind of, if you will, closed in and began quite vigorously studying mostly philosophy at the beginning and New Age spirituality, and then began looking at comparative religion as a whole. Now, you had mentioned earlier that you left your hometown. At what age did you leave your hometown? The first time I left, I was 22, actually. I was quite a bit older, and I moved to Calgary, and then I actually moved back to Trail, again, oddly, because I wanted to prove to myself that I could be the kind of person I wanted to be in my old environment. So I actually moved back for a year into that city and tried to just be who I wanted to be. And then uh, after a year there, I moved down to Vancouver. I came to Vancouver because I was studying communication. So I went to actually a college studying cognitive coaching and solution-focused counseling because I wanted to work within the counseling and communication field. Did you graduate with communications and counseling when you I were at Vancouver? I, yeah. I ended up with a diploma in solution-focused counseling and cognitive coaching and business coaching. I was studying that, and actually most of my time was taken up studying philosophy, comparative religion, going to school, and training the martial arts. Another one of my passions that started in my late teens. After I graduated from college, I actually worked doing respite care for troubled youth. And then my wife and I, along with another couple, who was my one of my teachers of the Baha'i faith, actually ran two houses that were, if you will, like 24-7 care for children with bonding and attachment disorders who had been like, physically and sexually abused. And then I actually went overseas for three years to teach English. Rob, how old were you when you ran into the Baha'i faith? I would have been 24. What were the circumstances that you ran into the Baha'i faith? And why don't you tell us your story about you becoming a Baha'i? How I ran into the Baha'i faith is, uh, it was actually my first day of college. So I was going to a private college here in Vancouver, studying solution focus counseling and coaching. So when I walked in my first day, I was standing in my kind of like open foyer, and another gentleman who was kind of waiting came up and just started talking to me, and he started asking me my questions about, you know, was I doing the coaching? What were my interests? How did I view the 
perspectives on counseling and social activism. So we started having this very nice discussion. And then what happened was, is he said, well, do you have any spiritual views? What I said to him was, well, I've come to be convinced that there is an ultimate reality, whatever it is that you may choose to call that. He's like, oh, okay. And I said, and it seems to me, like I, I, I study comparative religion, and I said, it seems to me that if we were to look closely, uh, we might find bridges that unite the major world religions, and that they're not actually that different. And then uh, the gentleman looked at me, and he said, oh, you're one of those, forgive me, bleeping Baha'is. That was a swear word. The way he reacted, I was kind of taken aback. And I said, no, I have no idea what that is. And I said, I don't really like the way you said it. Right? And he said, hey, uh, whatever, just talk to Jamin when he comes here. As if on cosmic cue, as soon as he said that, he just walked away. And this other gentleman walked up the stairs, and he's like, hi, good morning, my name's Jamin. That was it. <laughs> I was going suddenly in this very small class, I was going to school with this Baha'i. Because of that initial reaction with the other gentleman, I was both you know, a little bit shocked at the way the person responded and intrigued as to why he would think I was a person of this peculiar name. Uh, the only other experience was the second he said the word, I saw a yellow star, like I remembered seeing a yellow star with the word on it in my hometown, somewhere in a window. Huh. I found out later it was someone I knew. I had never heard of it up until that day. So it sort of triggered some subconscious memory? It did, actually. And I actually confirmed it. <laughs> my first time I ever went to a Baha'i Center, I ran into a gentleman who I, I knew well, who was in my brother's grad class, and their whole family, I always loved them. They were just wonderful people. And it turns out he was a Baha'i, and I just never knew. So why do you think that fellow that you ran into initially before the Baha'i had the reaction he did about the Baha'is? I actually found out after uh, what exactly it was, because this uh, individual had been having some discussion with the same individual, Jamin, and some other Baha'is in an attempt to uh, refute their position because of his own. I found out that some of the Baha'is I initially met were very beautiful and loving and eloquent and educated Baha'is, very educated Baha'is. And it had not gone well, and it had become very frustrating to him that a worldview that he didn't like did not seem to yield to attacks to put it as frankly as I can. He didn't agree with the Baha'i teachings or the Baha'i perspective on religion, yet he recognized what that position was, recognized what your thinking was when you expressed it, and tied the two together and said, ah, there's another bleeping bleeping Baha'i. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I had spoken of the unity of religion, and because I had said that if we were to look closely, 
that we would see bridges amongst these faiths. You know, there's a very beautiful quote in One Common Faith, uh, which is a work from the world center of the Baha'i faith. Yeah, I use it in a lot of deepenings, which is places where we study the Baha'i writings. And if it's okay, I I did grab this. If I could read it to you for two seconds, Warren, if it's okay. Sure. Um, it's an uh, objection most commonly raised um, against the Baha'i conception of religion is the assertion that the differences among the revealed faiths are so fundamental that to present them as stages or aspects of one unified system of truth does violence to the facts. And it says, given the confusion surrounding the nature of religion, the reaction is understandable. Chiefly, however, such an objection offers Baha'is an invitation to set the principles reviewed here more explicitly in evolutionary context provided in Baha'u'llah's writings. So, basically, that because of how we conceive of religion, when the idea that all the religions are different facets or aspects of one unified system, the quote uh, from the world, from this work, One Common Faith, is it seems to do violence to the facts, but that Baha'i should see that as understandable. We should understand how someone who has not looked into it the way we have may not perceive it that way, and see that as an invitation. So that is what had been happening with this individual. Right? So they had been discussing the concepts of unity of religion, that while though they're different on their surface, they are unified if uh, independent investigation of truth was to be carried out. So when I said what I said, which is that it seemed like they were different, but that there were ways to see them as one unified system, he immediately assumed this individual is a Baha'i. So your encounter with the Baha'i faith substantiated your own views about religion? Yes and no. I think when I first encountered it, my reaction to the Baha'i position was twofold. One was that it was a very intriguing idea that we could break down barriers and ideas that separate these different communities. But I don't think I would have truly seen it at all the same as the Baha'is, because while I was willing to investigate religion and look at it, I still had a lot of, how would you put it, angst against religion as a whole. When I began to investigate the Baha'i, that initial experience like intrigued me and kind of drew me in because I found that shocking that there would be a whole group of people that believe this. (laughs) But at the same time, my subsequent interaction with Baha'is was a great deal of debate. And some of my objections to religion as a whole, from the quote from that book, One Common Faith, I saw it as doing, at least to the degree of unity they were talking, doing violence to the facts. What did the Baha'i teachings that people gave you that turned yourself around in regards to the angst around religion? There was a whole series of them, actually. My understanding, obviously with anything I say about the Baha'i faith, it's only my own understanding of it. (laughs) In my investigation of the Baha'i faith, I saw reason, rationality, and investigation championed, right, on the one hand, and as I began to 
talk with members of the Baha'i faith. I saw an openness and willingness to discuss and dialogue and engage in friendly debate and discussion. And then as I began to share my, you know, my concerns or my apprehensions or my reservations, these individuals were willing to really sit down and sacrifice their time ease <laughs> to talk with me and actually go through my concerns and to really encourage me to investigate. And then I think for myself, a large part of it was seeing how one could actually fashion that bridge between religions that seem on their surface to be so different. How we could see that in spite of the adherence of one religion, believing this idea, and the adherence of this religion believing another idea, that when we went to the source, we could find them to be one. That was one major aspect for me, and I found that many of my, if you will, my angst towards religion in general uh, were not, as I would say, were not as based on reason and investigation, but rather imitation of what other people had said and emotional reactions. And then the third, that's okay, was actually the social teachings and the administrative order of the Baha'i faith, and that means the elected system of the Baha'i faith, what the Baha'i faith believes about how we can organize society and carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. That shocked me, actually. Why is that? I think all three of them shocked me, but when, <laughs> when it comes to the administrative order, meaning, again, the social structure of the Baha'i faith and how it views things like international relations or how it views like the introduction of like an international auxiliary language in addition to our mother tongue or how it looked at global security. I found uh, over and over ideas about how we can order society. One very new, I'd never heard of them before, so how Baha'is view political interaction with the world. And I increasingly, as I began to study voraciously on my own, I came to see that it was, if you will, a remedy for so many of the ills that afflict humankind, which would have to be there if the Baha'i faith was a true religion from God. So how long was this process in which you studied the Baha'i faith and then becoming a Baha'i? It was about a year for me to become a Baha'i. At the same time, uh, I believe that was both expedited and slowed down by former studies that I had done. Uh, I had the great and profound bounty of uh, having one of the individuals that taught me the faith with me at school every day. And in short order, once I understood what Baha'u'llah claimed and what the Baha'i faith claimed to be, and some of its, you know, if you will, immediate teachings that I could understand, I began training martial arts with my Baha'i teacher. He was my uh, instructor for about 12, 13 years. 
And what ended up happening was is we would train and then discuss and debate, and then we'd go to school and then go for lunch and train and discuss and debate. It's more a matter of how many hours that I actually spent with Baha'is, because, in, again, in short order, I began meeting with about three Baha'is, and sometimes we would you know, go to a coffee shop and sit there for nine, ten hours. Why I'm so profoundly thankful for the patience that these people had. And their willingness as well to say, well, I don't know that. Like, I don't, I don't know how to respond to that. Could we consult and look at the writings and, and get back to you? And I would say, of course. You know, like, I don't expect everyone to know everything. It was so admirable because they would come back. <laughs> and then we would continue having these discussions. So I would pretty much, most of my free hours were taken up investigating the Baha'i faith and having dialogue with Baha'is. It's beauty state, it's social teaching, it's administrative structure of its doctrines about the next world, about the nature of humankind, about how religion has been a staged and progressive system to shepherd them towards on an evolutionary path. Like those initially were quite simple and breathtaking to me in their beauty. But I thought, in a sense, that the, that beauty would yield, if you will, to assault, and it did not. So it became more and more shocking and more and more, if you will, intriguing and fascinating to me, where I would see that there are overt bridges between these different faiths. It's the greatest passion in my life. I've never encountered anything so beautiful. Ever. We'll return after a short break to our interview with Rob Kashoni, a Baha'i who ascribes himself as a closet philosopher. You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, streaming at valleyfreeradio.org. Famous think that no one will blame us Letting injustice go on as it does But the starving don't care about the price of your haircut Any true kindness will do Because Bono can't change the world Anymore than you two Your voices and hands do more than any commands could Reviving the spirits of all who surround you And Bono can't change the world Anymore than you two can Bring us Carl and Pearls Good woman and your Together by love So if you're not so uni 
perspective. We're playing an interview with Rob Cushoni, a Baha'i who ascribes himself as a closet philosopher. We had left off with Rob telling his story about becoming a Baha'i. We returned to the interview where he describes the reactions from his friends and family when he became a Baha'i. So you became a Baha'i. What was your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i? My parents had uh, separated when I was about 18, 19. My mother never said anything negative, had some questions, and was, oh, I think everyone found it rather peculiar, because on the one hand, who I had been before that was a quite rough-and-tumble character, and because I was a closet philosopher, not many people knew I was doing such investigations. It was more of a distance on her side, but she didn't want to know and understand on my father's side, sadly, what ensued was years of attack uh, against my beliefs. And it was very difficult. So I would go home and basically enter my father's place, and what would ensue would be four hours of debate. Every time for about four or five years. Because the highs were never allowed ourselves to be contentious. We always strive to be as calm and collected and share what I thought. We had gone through, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of objections to a Baha'i perspective, both from a historical and Christian perspective. 
after that long period, it came to the point, and it sounds very strange, he had given an objection to which I responded, and he felt, he appeared frustrated because I was able to express why I didn't believe that was so, if you will. And he walked out of the room and he came back and said, I know now why the Baha'i faith will never work. And I was very tired of this, but meaning just emotionally tired. And I said, okay, well, what is it? Like, what is it now? And he said, because the Baha'i faith is very rational and people are not. And then he walked out of the room and I was stunned. Uh, I went out for the day. I woke up in the morning. He took me for a coffee and said, I never want to discuss religion, philosophy, or social issues ever again with you. And he said, it's not allowed, so this ends that way of relating to each other. And then, sadly, that has continued now for many years. But that, in, in some sense, I, I know it sounds strange, but I was very pleased with the former way when people would ask and question and query and prod, and right? I prefer direct uh, opposition often to silent avoidance. That's just myself. I would rather people openly disagree than avoid. And... That's uh, a lot of people I knew. Once I became a Baha'i, disappeared from my life very quickly. Most of my friends, the vast majority of them, who were secularists, not, not Christian in background, no longer wished to speak to me. Now, had your lifestyle changed dramatically when you were studying or becoming a Baha'i? It had. I was going through like a very, how would you say, transformative period of my life. Before meeting Baha'is, I would speak very openly about how we should fulfill our potential as human beings and seek to change the world, to strive to eradicate the sufferings of other people. Now, these are actually what I call modern blasphemies, Warren. There are things you should not speak about in polite company, Right. Actually, Rob, I don't understand that. Why okay. Why is that? Well, I find that, at least in my, this is my experience of Western society, uh, individuals, we represent ourselves as our, our culture as being you know, willing to talk about anything, willing to push the envelope, uh, make fun of anything, discuss anything. And I don't find that to be the case at all. I find that if you wish to clear a room <laughs> very quickly, there's two ways. You can say fire and everybody runs, or you can start talking about love and justice and sacrificing one's own desires for the needs of the world, mm. or talk about sobriety or chastity or nobility. <laughs> I think these are not easily discussed topics in our culture. That's what I meant by modern blasphemies. I see. We are very averse to such topics because they place us in a position where we have to ask ourselves, what then shall we do? How will we sacrifice? How will we change? And those are very difficult. Those are very difficult questions. So before I became a Baha'i, I had moved in that direction. 
So I was getting very disheartened with my world because I saw the suffering of the multitudes and the apathy of so many maintaining a system that allowed children to starve and allowed people to feel lonely and unloved in an ocean of humanity. And really, like, it tore me up. So I began to say, like, I can't live in this way of being. So I was already, you know, rubbing people's fur the wrong way. And then what happened was is some people, like, that's kind of okay because you could have, like, a social discussion. But when I became a Baha'i, all of a sudden I'm talking about the Buddha, about Jesus Christ, about Krishna and the Bob and Baha'u'llah, the central figures of the Baha'i faith. I'm talking about things like universal love and universal peace. And these things are very often very upsetting to people. They bring out the feelings of responsibility and duty and sacrifice. Things we do not wish to often talk about. There's a great deal of prejudice amongst of our world, you have Buddhists that don't like Hindus, you have Christians that don't like Muslims, and Muslims who don't like Jews, and Jews who don't like Muslims. There's all these walls separating humanity and these great prejudices that are preventing us from moving forward as a civilization. And one of them, I think, which is often very surprising to many people, is there is of course, there's a prejudice uh, amongst many, from many religionists to those of a secular and atheist background, non-religious, those that don't believe in God. But it goes both ways. So if you're religious, I don't want to talk to you. A signal event that always comes to my mind, I was working at a restaurant. I was a waiter, and there had been like a very large snowstorm here in Vancouver. And nobody was out. Right? Um, you know, people get really freaked out by snow here on the West Coast. Nobody was really out, so there was about six or seven of us, eight of us in the, in the restaurant, and we didn't have anything to do. So I was cleaning up, and a group of my coworkers, about six of them, were standing near the front door watching the snow talking. And what ended up happening was my ears parked up when I heard the topic turn to religion. I was a Baha'i at the time. What I heard and listened to for about 15 minutes was the lambasting of religion, the attacks, and religious people are ignorant, or religious people have caused every war in history, religious people do this, or religion is this. I listened for about 15 minutes, and then I chose to walk up, tried to be very courteous, and they said that, I just want to ask a couple of questions, if it's okay. I've been listening to you guys. And they said, oh, of course. So I turned to one of them and I said, have you ever read the writings of the Buddha? And he said, well, no, as if that was a silly question. I said, okay. And I turned to the other one and I said, have you ever I don't read, say, for example, a surah from the Quran or, or looked at Arab or Islamic history. No. Then I said, you ever read the Upanishads, a work of Hindu scripture or the Bhagavad Gita? No. 
So I just asked a series of questions. I said, have you ever you know, investigated Zoroastrianism or looked into even Shintoism or Taoism or Confucianism? And every answer was no. And I said, okay, well, then I don't really know what you're actually talking about. If you don't know anything about Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, or sorry, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, Shintoism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, um, what could you mean when you say all religions are blank or all religious people do X? I said, I, I just feel sad because I believe in the independent investigation of truth. And I don't think we should clump billions of people together under one blanket umbrella when they don't actually know what they believe and have never looked into it. What I ended up saying was, I think what you probably mean when you say religious people is what you mean first is Christians, because that's what you know. But I don't think you mean educated and loving and wise Christians. You probably mean your friend, right, who became Christian and you know, went in another direction. Or you mean some guy you heard at 2 o'clock in the morning on the television, televangelists, or someone who knocked on your door that annoyed you. I don't think you really mean a deep and philosophical investigation of that faith. But that, to me, is a symptomatic of what we're dealing with in the global community. As you were going through this transformative process, and I guess it may not be the pinnacle of the transformative process, because when, even when you become a Baha'i, you're still learning and growing spiritually. But during this process of becoming a Baha'i, did it impact what you wanted to do in the world? I know you had expressed that you had angst about how the system as it was or is, is creating the troubles of the world, the economic separation and the wars and the strife. Did becoming a Baha'i somehow direct that in a certain way such that your life had a different purpose and went steering in a different direction, the work that you do? Uh, very, very much. The Baha'i faith actually just uprooted my life, to be honest. Of course, some essentials remained in the fact of a care for humanity, a willingness to help. But on the one hand, it shifted how I looked at service to humankind in several very, very major ways. When I became a Baha'i, and I could have said this before in some, to some degree, but I, I didn't quite get it or realize it. The world that we live in is, uh, this is going to sound peculiar, but I'll say it anyway. The world we live in is mostly conceptual. The world is ruled and shifted and guided by, by beliefs and concepts and ideas. We often think of the world as wholly material, but it's actually mostly 
all the things that matter, our intentions, purposes, values, goals, principles, ideas, and concepts. When I came to accept really that Baha'u'llah is who he says he is, the manifestation of God for this day, I realized that reality of the world being divided ideologically came like really crushing in for me. And I realized that if you take something um, like a eradication of the extremes of wealth and poverty, a central Baha'i principle, oftentimes we think that, well, we can't feed everyone, right? Or we can't solve this crisis in this other part of the world because we don't have the resources, which is itself a delusion. We're fully able to do it. We just don't. Because we put things of ephemeral and material nature on a higher value structure than the sufferings of our brothers and sisters on this planet. It's not a material problem. It's a spiritual problem. So when this happened, one of the things that transformed for me was how I will go about uniting and healing the hills of the world. And one of them, the chief in my world, was demonstrating the unity of the world's spiritual traditions. As a quote, I don't have it on hand, it's from the promulgation of universal peace a series of talks by one of the by central figures, Abdu'l-Baha, as he was talking throughout North America in 1912 to 1914. And he says that, I'm, I'm nearly paraphrasing, but he says that when we return and investigate these faiths, these religions, and put aside imitation and superstition and seek to understand their essence, he says, we will see that they are one. And thus, we have a foundation for the oneness of humankind. That's a pretty close paraphrase. And I saw that really some of the great, if you will, factions of our world were really ideological camps so I suddenly poured myself into trying to show to a Buddhist that Jesus is his Lord. Or a Christian, that Hinduism is neither strange nor antithetical to the New Testament of Christianity. And many of these things sound odd to people. But that's the invitation that I wish to take up. So that's one side. Uh, and continuing till this day, attempt to demonstrate the unity of the world religions and the truth and beauty and profundity of the Baha'i cause. Why? This led to the other, because of the other shift. The Baha'is, my understanding of the Baha'is, of course, see really the manifestations of God, those figures through which divinity communicates, like the Buddha or Christ 
Krishna's raster, the Bob and Bahá'u'lláh, the, one of the titles, actually, of these figures in the Baha'i writings is the Divine Physician. And that this Divine Physician is to deliver a remedy for the ills of humanity. And just uh, oh, two days ago, we were doing a study, and one of the statements is, is and given that the ills afflict, that afflict humankind from age to age, vary in their nature and severity, it is no wonder that the teachings of the divine physician in their social nature do not appear identical at each stage in the healing of humanity. So, <laughs> when I looked at the Baha'i teachings of how to reorder society, I saw in it the best possible way I could serve humanity. And the analogy that's always ruled my mind in this regard, I've always used this in uh, given talks or discussions with people, it's as if you, uh, you're walking along a river and you see you know, someone drowning, right? And it's, they say it's a, a woman going down and she's fighting for breath as she's being carried down the river. So you run into the river and you swim in and you grab her and you, and you drag her to the shore and you lay her on the sand and you have a couple friends with you and you're like, we've got to help her out. But all of a sudden you hear someone screaming and you look behind you and there's someone coming down the river and they're drowning. So you swim in again and you grab them and you drag them out. As soon as you get to the shore, there's another person going by. So all of a sudden, you're just running back into the river and dragging them up onto the shore. And all you and your friends are all getting exhausted doing this. And suddenly you see a person standing above looking down on the beach. And you call to them to help. Please help us. And the person looks at you and he turns and walks away. So in a fit of anger, you run towards them and you chase them down, and you're chasing him along the trails up the river. But when you get up the river, you see him fixing the bridge. Because the reason people keep falling in the river is because the bridge is broken. And this framed very much how and why I changed how I viewed the direction in my life. The problem we're dealing with is that the bridge is broken, and I praise anyone who is willing to sacrifice their time to pull people out of the water. But the remedy given by the divine physician needs to be applied or the sickness will continue. In other words, people just keep drowning. There's a letter from the Universal House of Justice, which is the top elected body of the highs of the world, and it's called a Baha'i Approach to Material Suffering. And they said that we must, again, this is a paraphrase, but we must seek to build up the Baha'i conception, to bring people together to work in a new way, rather than get distracted. The change statement is the, is the quixotic tournaments 
of our world. The quixotic is from the, the story of Don Quixote, where he would rush at windmills pretending they were giants. So the statement, I, my understanding is, you to use a metaphor, the bridge must be fixed. And we honor anyone who wishes to serve and sacrifice in these ways, but we have to fix the system. So that's where all of my energy has been directed for 50 The teachings of the Baha'i faith, one of the primary ones, is the independent investigation of truth. To actually look at things with our own eyes and not through the eyes of another. And that to really, really, really investigate the life and teachings of Baha'u'llah, to actually delve deeply into them. For it is the nature of rationality, investigation, in all realms. We find underlying unities below the surface of differences. This is how we proceed to categorize our world. And the high faith is really a profoundly deep and beautiful system. And I would like to end with a quote, if that's okay. Please. Put all your beliefs into harmony with science. There can be no opposition for truth is one. When religion, shorn of its superstitions, traditions, and unintelligent dogmas, shows its conformity with science, there will be a great unifying, cleansing force in the world, which will sweep before it all wars, disagreements, discords, and struggles. And then will mankind be united in the power of the love of God. This is a quote from a book called Paris Talks, which was a series of talks given by the central figures in Paris in 1911. And my parting statement is really that, to actually put aside our limitations and actually truly investigate. And that that demands sacrifice, but so do all things that are beautiful. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your story and your thoughts with us. It's my absolute pleasure, my friend. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Rob Cushoni, a Baha'i who ascribes himself as a closet philosopher. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Should be dying, but it's only just begun 
like the twilight in the road up ahead They don't see just where we're going All secrets in the universe Whisper in our ears All the years will come and go And take us up, always up into anger and outrage at war and violence, or being defined as part of a protest movement, to creating a culture of peace from the ground up and from the inside out. I am moving from reactive finger pointing condemnation and judgment of others arising out of my presumed superior moral positions 
to engage in dialogue, listening, and nonviolent communication strategies. I'm moving from making those who disagree with us as the enemy to recognizing the inherent flaw in creating hostility or enmity as a peace strategy. In this way, my work attempts to dissolve polarizing approaches and behaviors. I'm moving from demanding rights to assuming our responsibility to create environments which promote rights and emphasize individual and collective responsibility for an ecologically sustainable, socially just, democratically vibrant, and healthy world. I am moving from merely critiquing the absence of humanity in others to honing our collective capacities for compassionate action, deep empathy, and authentic forgiveness. I am a peace ambassador, and I am moving towards planetary peace. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.